Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And we are here today with Lois Lowry. Hi, Lois. Hi there, ladies. I wish I could see you, but uh, nice to hear your voices. Well, we can send you a picture of us smiling very big. We are that, so excited to talk to you. Yes, that we're meeting you even <laughs> virtually. So, Well, just to start off with, we are so thrilled that you're with us. We really appreciate you spending the time. You've caught me in a kind of unusual situation here. The electricity has just gone off here. Oh, so I'm no. sitting in the, in, the, in the pitch dark. At some point while we're talking, I might be startled by all the lights going on. There's nothing I can do uh, without the lighting. I can't read, can't watch TV, so I might as well be talking to you. (laughs) That works for us. Can you tell us a little bit about about how you got started writing? Well, I have to go way, way back to answer that question uh, because I started writing and wanting to be a writer uh, back when I was a little girl, Uh, somewhere, well, not somewhere, actually in a children's magazine published in 1947. When I was 10 years old, there's a letter from me which says I'm writing a novel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That particular novel uh, never was finished because when you're 10 years old, you you start big and, and peter out. But but I knew from that time that I, I wanted to be a writer. And I was just telling somebody today, a friend, I don't know how it came up, but when I was 13, and this would have been 1950, my father gave me a typewriter for my birthday. I guess my parents did. I think it was my father because he was the one who chose it and, and who had a little uh, plaque made for the case with my name on it. And in 1950... That was an amazing gift. Nowadays, of course, every 10-year-old has his own computer. But in 1950, kids didn't have typewriters. And uh, and so that, I think, says something about the fact that I passionately wanted to be a writer and that my father knew that and gave me what has always seemed to me to be the most remarkable gift a child has ever received. My family traveled a lot, so I... I uh, didn't travel, move from place to place. I lived in a lot of places. But when I went to college in Rhode Island, I went there with the intention of studying writing. So it was, I, I, there was never anything else I wanted to do. However, I was a, a college girl in the 50s, and it was not at all unusual then to do what I did, which was to drop out and get married when the boyfriend graduated. And then, this was also not unusual, I had a baby when I was, let me think, 21, and a baby when I was 22, and a baby when I was 24, and a baby when I was 25. So uh, I, I, uh, I spent a lot of time not becoming a writer in those days. Uh, and then when my youngest child went to kindergarten, I went back to college because I hadn't finished. So it took me a long time to make my way to where I had always wanted to be. And in graduate school, 
and this is a long answer to a short question, but <laughs> uh, I, I began I began writing for magazines, and I was also studying photography in graduate school. So I began as a photojournalist, but fiction had always been my my love. And so my first, well, I started to say my first book uh, was published in 1977, and that's true, but it was, uh, what's the word, preceded by short fiction in magazines. And by then, I, I can't do the math quickly, but I was in my 30s. My kids were growing up. Uh, I, I had a house and a family to take care of, but I was finding time to, to write. And and, uh, and so then, as a result of having read something, I, a short story I published in a magazine, a children's book editor wrote to me and asked if I would consider writing a book for young people. That has surprisingly never occurred to me, even though I had young kids and I had read to them, and, and our house was filled with books. So I was writing fiction, I thought, for adults. However, it is so unusual to have a publisher, a major publisher, come to you and, and say, would you write a book for us? Even though they didn't promise to publish it, uh, I did sit down and write a book then for young people, and they did publish it, and that was my first book for kids, published in 1977. However many years ago that was, oh, I, I can... I can uh, count because I was 40 when that when that book was published, and I'm now 81, so it was 41 years ago. And uh, in those years, throughout those years, I've now published, I think, 45 books. So uh, it it took me a little while to start doing it, but once I started, I didn't didn't stop. And most people at my age have long retired, but. I'm still at it, still at my computer every day. (laughs) And we're grateful for it. Most of your characters, Anastasia Krupnik, Goonie Bird, Ravel Starkey, Annalise, they all are super introspective, but they're all very distinct. Do you think that traveling a lot as a child contributes to that? Well, as a child, I was always painfully shy and and very introverted. I don't say painfully introverted because I loved my own solitude, but I was painfully shy. It was difficult for me to uh, make friends quickly, and my family moved, uh, oh, every couple of years, and so I was always the new kid in a new school and, in some cases, in a different country. I wasn't unpopular. I, I did make friends, but I was, I was not an outgoing child. And, and I used my time to uh, observe, which, of course, uh, is a, a task that every, every writer has to undertake, and, and to think, and also, I should add, to read. When we moved, when I was 11 years old, to Tokyo, uh, uh, we had to leave all of our things behind, and that included my enormous collection of books, which my mother donated to the public library in the town where we lived. And uh, that was was a great time for me. But when I got to Tokyo, I discovered, uh, after a short time, an American library, even in those days, not that long after the war. And there in the library uh, were all my favorite books. 
So uh, that's that's how I spent the large part of my early adolescence, with my head in a book and my eyes on the uh, culture and and community around me, uh, observing everything. I've always been a a watcher, and uh, and I still am. I'm no longer as painfully shy as I once was. I've had to. I mean, I'm still an introvert. I I prefer solitude to almost anything. But uh, I've I've learned to to you know stand up and make a speech in front of hundreds of people, and it doesn't bother me. I could never have done that when I was 12 or 15. Now I've forgotten the question you asked because <laughs> as always. I always do this. I, I start uh, talking, and my mind goes in many different directions. And this, incidentally, is <clears throat> the same way I write a book. I, I don't outline it in advance. I, I start with a character and a setting and, and perhaps a, a, a situation. And, and then I just start out, and my mind goes here and there. And, and uh, I have likened it in the past to taking a group of children on a trip to the zoo. And along the way, some of them take a wrong turn, and you have to chase some away uh, back and grab them and bring them back and keep them all in line and keep them marching toward the destination. And that's what I do when I'm writing a book. Uh, things I digress. I go off in different directions. Characters appear that I hadn't known about until they appear. And so I have to uh, organize them and and keep them marching along uh, toward the end. And, of course, once you get all those children to the zoo, it better be a good zoo. Uh, (laughs) Otherwise, there would have been no, no point in taking them. Yeah, and the the book characters you mentioned... Two in particular, Goonie Bird, who's in second grade, and Anastasia Krupnik, who in the first book about her is in fourth grade, and then she continues throughout nine books, and I I think by the end she's in eighth grade, say. Uh, But both of those characters are in part the child that I was, bright and inquisitive and introspective, but they are also the child I wished I could be, which is outgoing and and uh, feisty, and uh, my mother would would say smart mouth, uh, mm-hmm. uh, particularly about Anastasia. But at any rate, uh, I I think it's something a writer also often does, which is to recreate his or her own self. I can't speak for other writers, of course, but I know. Often in in writing a a character who is a young girl, I have written books about boys, but more often uh, they have female protagonists. Uh, Often I'm I'm rewriting my my own self, uh, remembering my own self, re-inhabiting my own self, looking out through my younger eyes, but then giving that character the attributes that, that I didn't have at that time. I really enjoyed that aspect of your Newberry speech about the giver, where you talked about the different memories that sort of uh, accumulated over time to inspire the book, about how you were in Japan and you were in like this little American enclave, but then you, oh, went, yeah. you went elsewhere. Um, I love, yep. I love yep. that. And uh, you know, I haven't reread that speech in a very long time, but I of course remember 
what you're referring to, and which apparently I talked about in that speech, which was <laughs> being in Japan in, in a, a protected area. I mean, this was not that long after World War II, and they had um, built a place for Americans to live, which was not within the uh, regular Japanese community, but, but I was not locked in there. And uh, I, again and again, uh, went out into those, streets of Tokyo, which were, and, and which remain, I've been back in, to Tokyo a number of times, a very safe place. Uh, it was not at all, uh, un- I don't know if my mother knew that I did this, but sh- if she didn't, she, sh- she need not have been alarmed that I was out there at age 11, 12 on my bicycle, riding around in, in the streets of Tokyo, all by myself. And I I'm not sure that I talked about this in that speech, but one of the things I did in those days was to ride past a Japanese school and and stop there, leaning on my bike, watching the Japanese children on their playground. Uh, is this mentioned in the speech? Do you recall? I think you mentioned how you would you would look at the children and they looked at you, but you never talked to them. Oh, okay. But did I mention that Alan Say, who received the Caldecott Medal at that same event, the same year, uh, was one of the children in that schoolyard. Oh, my goodness. And uh, he and I became friends many, many years later. I I just was conversing with him uh, by email this this week. Um, And and when we sort of went down our, our history, he's Japanese, as you know, uh, we're exactly the same age. And when I mentioned to him that I had lived in Japan, and he asked where, I said Tokyo. He said so did I. What part? I told him. He said so did I. Uh, and then he said suddenly, "Were you the girl on the green bike?" Oh my goodness! Uh, and and it it just uh, it's one of those moments that if you put it in a book, an editor would say, "I don't know. That's a little <laughs> impossible credibility problem." Um, but it also says a lot, I think, about about the world and about uh, how, as young people, we were, uh, well, it was, of course, different cultures in a different time, and, and I didn't speak his language, nor did he speak mine, but we didn't, outside of curiosity, make that kind of connection, and so we sacrificed 50 years of, of friendship that we, we could have had. And, and I think we both feel very fortunate to have met uh, as we have in our, in our late life. In The Giver, we learn from The Giver himself that the community was created in kind of in the wake of a catastrophe. Was that something that you were aware of? as a child in Tokyo? Oh, okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I have to think back. Uh, in, in the book, The Giver, there's really not much reference made to what had preceded uh, that community, what had brought about the change in the world. But uh, one has to assume some apocalyptic changes. And when I was a kid and went to Tokyo... Uh, I had lived as a child through World War II, and my father had been in the Pacific in the war, so I was aware of it, but I was a a kid. I was eight when the war ended. When I went to Tokyo, I I saw firsthand 
the uh, devastation of it. Uh, Tokyo, Tokyo had been badly bombed and it had burned, and and there was still rubble in in what is now a very cosmopolitan city, and. Uh, and so I, I, I was aware of it, but it was a child's awareness. Uh, I, I don't think I thought deeply about it, although I'm now remembering something. We kids were taken by school bus each day to a school in the center of Tokyo. Uh, American kids taken to the international school there. And um, the driver of the school bus was a Japanese man. It's not surprising that there were not many Japanese men around because, of course, they had been lost in the war. Uh, But this was an older Japanese man, very pleasant. And just before Christmas vacation, I remember, I got on the bus and I was in seventh grade. I was young for seventh grade. I was 11 years old, but I had skipped some school and uh, some uh, earlier uh, classes, and and so I was in seventh grade. And therefore, on the bus were kids from seventh to twelfth grade up through high school. The bus driver had decorated his bus with Christmas decorations. Uh, There were very colorful paper decorations uh, all over the bus, decorating the windows and hanging from the ceiling. And and I think he was very proud of them. And, And I was aware, again, quiet little me sitting there, not saying this to anybody, but I was aware that that bus driver was probably not someone who celebrated Christmas. That was our holiday. Japanese, uh, Japan was not a Christian nation. Uh, he was very likely Buddhist, Shinto. Uh, but nonetheless, and also he would have been very poor because all the Japanese were very, very poor at that time. And he had spent his own money on these somewhat tawdry, gaudy Christmas decorations. And as we were making the long trip to school, because it was quite a distance, the high school boys began joking around, fooling around, and they began tearing up the decorations, pulling them down and throwing them at each other. And from where I sat on the bus, I could look forward and I could see the driver's face in the mirror, in the rearview mirror, and I could see the look on his face, and uh, I mean, that I can see it now at age 81 uh, instead of age 11, uh, that look of, of uh, pain, of, of anger, I think, resentment, uh, and, and all, of the, all of the combinations of things. That's the kind of thing I noticed as a child. I doubt if another kid on that bus noticed what that bus driver was feeling. But uh, I, you can see, have, have not forgotten it. Here I was in this, in this place, which was so different. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure it was analogous to the community of the giver, except that in various army installations where I have lived, and in this one small enclave in Japan, uh, there was always an attempt, usually a successful attempt, to be extremely orderly and rule-bound to the point of, of rigidity. Most army pl- uh, posts, and, and where I lived was simply a residential area in Tokyo, 
other places I've lived on an actual army post. And in those places, of course, the troops also lived there and the officers and, and the commanding general. And so there would be a flag raising ceremony every morning. <clears throat> and at five o'clock in the evening when the flag was taken down, everybody, wherever they were, if they were outdoors, stood at attention with their hand over their heart. And uh, it's not a, a normal community. It's, it's uh, you know, I, I suppose it could be described as an attempt at a kind of utopia. Very safe, always. Um, very structured, very orderly. My mother never had to worry where the kids were because we were within the the fence that encircled that, that army installation, and uh, it was very tightly controlled. So I, and, and also, another thing that, that I think informed the community I created for the giver, the housing. My father was a fairly high-ranking officer, so we generally had a very nice house. Uh, in one case, next door to the commanding general of the whole darn thing. Uh, and then in decreasing splendor would be the houses of the lower-ranking officers and then the houses of the enlisted people, and each of all of them alike, uh, so that there would be rows and rows of, of houses uh, that were uh, replicas of one another. And that's what I pictured in the uh, in the creation of the the community of the giver. Of course, it's not an illustrated book, but but uh, an illustrator could have have just simply used a photograph of an American army army base and and created that community. So I think that very that very much went into the creation of of that book. However, I never at, at any age. I mean, the last time I have. Uh, been on Army Post was after I was married and home visiting my parents who were at that point in Fort McPherson, Georgia, not far from you. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, once again, they had the big house facing the parade ground. Um, I never at any time on a military base felt that there was an undercurrent of something deeply evil. And uh, I did try to create that feeling in, in the world of the giver. And, of course, when I say maybe I should have, I'm referring to the fact that an army installation is, is built for the military. And, uh, and everybody who lives on such a place, excluding the children, is there because they're uh, in, in readiness for war. And that's deeply evil, as far as I'm concerned, but, but not with evil intent. So, although I think it, my background did uh, affect the writing of that book, I, I did have, I think, a very, very happy childhood. Well, speaking of, of how you visualize things in The Giver, we were so intrigued to realize that the man on the cover in the photograph um, was someone that you actually knew. Knew and photographed, yes. Uh, <clears throat> I think I mentioned that I had worked as a photographer for magazines, and I had been sent by a magazine to, to write an article about that man and to photograph him. Uh, he was a, an artist. And uh, I remember that when 
that photograph and others of him were floating in my darkroom sink. Because nowadays everybody uses digital cameras, but I, I had a darkroom and the whole stuff that people did back then. And when his photograph was floating in the darkroom sink with water running over it, my son walked past and glanced down, and he said, Who's that, Moses? And when I, I wrote a note to that man, his name was Carl Nelson, to thank him for the time that we had spent together. I had gone to, and he lived on an island off the coast of Maine, and I'd gone there to spend time with him. Uh, and I, I told him that. I described my son's comment, and when he wrote back to me, he signed the letter with love from Moses. <laughs> uh, he was a very, uh, a very lovely man. Uh, but by the time I wrote the book, he was long dead. I had written that article. I had taken that photograph in 1977, and I wrote The Giver in 19, probably 1993 or four. And uh, he he had died some years before, so he never got to see himself uh, on a book cover. And he had never married, never had children. He was a gay man. And and so, uh, you know, no nobody, he was the end of his line. And I've always been kind of sorry about that, that he didn't ever have a chance to know what an iconic uh, figure he has become. I Incidentally, there was a second photograph of him that I would have preferred to use, which had a much more compassionate and benign expression on his face. Beautiful face, but the one that's on the cover has a quality of, of a little little bit of sinister to it. And the one I wish I could have used uh, was more benign. However, it had his hand in the photograph. And he had a beautiful old man's hand, but he had a Band-Aid on one fig- finger. And and that would have been a distraction. <clears throat> the irony is that if I were doing it now, I could put that photograph into Photoshop and remove <laughs> that bandage. <laughs> but back in the darkroom days, you couldn't do that. And I think actually the one that's on the cover of the book perhaps is is more appropriate because it it uh, it's a little. Uh, disturbing the the look of the man uh, on the book I think I think you're right and it's it's so interesting because had I not read that story I would think that this is just the absolute most perfect cover design that someone chose for your story and photographed for your story yeah yeah I uh that's the no it was not the first time uh uh the uh the book Number of the Stars also used a photograph of mine, uh, which also dated back to the days when I was a photographer. But I had kept some of those old photographs. And when Number of the Stars was about to be published and they were trying to decide what to do on the cover, that child was Swedish. And uh, I sent a copy of the photograph to the publisher to show what she should look like, thinking that they could give it to the illustrator. But instead, they asked if uh, they could use the photograph itself. So I I called the girl's parents to get their permission. And they laughed, and they said, you'll have to call her. She's, I've forgotten what age, but she was all grown up by then. 
And in fact, she's now in her 50s and has children in college. And, and I should add that she's just as beautiful now as she as she was then. I, I saw her several years ago. She lives in Connecticut. And I was there because the theater was doing a performance of, of a play of uh, Number of the Stars. And, and she came. And I was able to introduce her to the audience. And everybody was quite astounded. Gathering Blue, that's a girl I photographed also. And then uh, the book called Messenger. Mm-hmm. Um, they asked me asked me to uh, do a photograph for that book cover, and uh, I was at my summer home, which is in western Maine, and I sort of put out a call to everybody I knew that I was looking for a 14-year-old boy to be a model, and uh, this lovely boy showed up. I, I don't remember what year that book was published, but I'm sure he's uh, adult now, probably married. Uh, but at any rate, I had when he he came with his parents, and and I said yes, uh, you know I'll hire you. I paid him two hundred dollars, I think, and uh, I asked him if he could bring a puppy uh, for the day to when we were doing the photographs. He didn't himself have a dog, but he said he would borrow a puppy. <laughs> so <laughs> so he did, and he arrived with a puppy, but it was a very large puppy, and. Uh, so I took a number of photographs of him out in the woods holding this puppy. But uh, looking at the photographs, I, I had him put the puppy inside his jacket so the dog's head is sticking out. Looking at the photographs, I realized people would chuckle uh, seeing this uh, uh, big puppy with its big paws hanging out. <laughs> and I tried going back to the manuscript and, and rewriting sections which described the puppy, and, and I tried describing him as a big, ungainly puppy, but it, but it didn't work, so I used a photograph with no puppy in it. Too bad. <laughs> uh, one other thing I just thought of, the boy, when he came to be photographed, and he, he's a very good-looking boy, but he was 14, and uh, he said he was trying to grow a mustache, and if I really <laughs> wanted him to, he would shave it off. And, and he was sporting a very unsuccessful mustache. Uh, but I told him, no, he didn't need to shave it off. And so the photographs that I took of him have this uh, very, very uh, ungainly mustache. But I removed it in Photoshop. <laughs> and that's it in the photograph. That's so cute. <laughs> and then um, the f- first printing of Sun, it, it just has an illustrated cover, right? Yes. Um, by the time the fourth book came out, which was a long time later, uh, they redid all the covers of the books, and they had, I don't know the illustrator, but they had someone design the new covers, and, and an illustrator used the original pictures, photographs, but, but uh, did them for the illustrated covers, and then uh, the fourth book has a girl's picture on it. I, I don't know if she was an actual model or if he just made up that face, but they didn't ask me to do a photograph for that one. With the cliffhanger ending of The Giver, did you end up writing the rest of the quartet as a result of everyone badgering you? Well, certainly after the first one was published and, and uh, I had intentionally given it and ambiguous ending 
which I thought was an optimistic ending, but a lot of a lot of people were puzzled by it and confused, and a lot of kids I've discovered really would like things tied up, and uh, so for a long time I didn't contemplate doing another book, but then when I uh, some books later I I was working on a new book with a a female character and an interesting setting when I suddenly realized I could tie it to the giver. And that was, that was gathering blue, which could have been a completely separate book. But I, I, uh, at the very end mentioned the existence of a boy with, with light eyes who clearly was the boy from the giver and, and kids recognized that. And, and so then having done that, I, I then, uh, in the third book, which was again several years after the second, uh, I purposely uh, took characters from from the earlier books, and and then by the fourth book, all of them who who are still alive uh, are are in the fourth book, so that a reader can, I hope, be satisfied at finding out what happened to each. You know, a reader will often have a character that they relate to that is their favorite. And and so whichever one they chose, if they wanted to know what happened to Gabe, the baby, they find out in the fourth book. If they want to know where Jonas is, they can see him with a wife and children. If they want to know where Kira from the second book is, she's there too. So uh, I hope everybody w- was uh, satisfied with the concluding book, even though I still get letters from kids who <laughs> wish that I would write a fifth book, because of course... <laughs> The fourth book is is 400 pages long, and I had to introduce some new characters, and uh, and so now they wonder what happened. In particular, they're very curious about. In the middle of the book, the girl Claire has a friend who is a, a boy. I've forgotten what age she is at that point. Teenage, I guess, and so would he be. She's physically handicapped because of, of injuries that have been inflicted on him. And um, and she leaves him behind when she continues on, and and so now kids want to know, boohoo, what happened to him now that she's gone? I'm so glad you brought up Gathering Blue. I love that book so much. It's beautiful with all the descriptions of her dying, all the you know using all the colors, and I'm just so curious about your maybe decision or your inspiration to use color as the mitigating factor in The Giver. And then carrying that theme through. Oh, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of it in that context, but certainly in in Gathering Blue, and I don't remember the distance of time between, uh, well, of course, the giver was first, and and in the giver, they're deprived of color. And so I guess it was a natural outgrowth of that, that in the second book, that color would be so pervasive. Uh, and I, I, this past summer, I went to Pennsylvania to see the opening of a musical based on The Giver. And there's a wonderful scene where the old woman is, is dying, and, and across the stage is a rope hanging with all these uh, colorful uh, pieces of yarn hanging from it. And I, I don't remember the words to the song, but, but uh, it, it's a wonderful song about all the colors. Uh, and, and I suppose that is a... Uh, Oh, a reflection of the lack of color in the first book. Everything is is turned upside down. Everything is so organized and 
and uh, structured in the first book. And in the second book, the community in which she lives is so squalid and and uh, chaotic, uh, and yet it has color. So, yeah, it's an interesting juxtaposition, I think. When The Giver came out, I was 14, and I remember reading it and thinking, I didn't necessarily want a sequel. I wanted a prequel where I could hear more about the original giver when he was Jonas's age with the with the music. He talked about hearing uh, beyond instead of seeing uh, beyond. Yeah, yeah. You know, it never occurred to me to wonder about the world that preceded uh, the giver, uh, about the young man who would have become the giver. That would have been a whole other direction to go to, but that never never came to my mind. When you won the Newberry for The Giver, you had already won before. Um, so obviously you had an experience to compare it to. Um, would you mind talking about your Number of the Stars um, experience and then your Giver experience with the Newberry? Yeah. Um, when Number of the Stars... Oh, I'm trying to think when it was published. It would have been 1989, uh, yeah. Uh, so that would have been 12 years after the publication of my first book. Um, nonetheless, I had not really thought much about or been much of a part of the world of children's literature. I, I knew of the Newbery Medal. Uh, I my kids had read books that had the Newbery Medal on them, uh, but I just wasn't tuned in to any of that, and uh, I was not aware that the committee was meeting at a certain time. It just was beyond my my realm of of interest, I guess. And so I was uh, I lived in at the time in in Boston. And I, I was at home on a January morning at my desk, at my, I started to say at my computer, but I didn't yet have a computer. I had just moved up from a typewriter to a word processor, which was a huge step, but I, I didn't yet have a computer. But at any rate, I was at my desk that morning when the phone rang, and it was the committee on the phone. I guess they're on a speakerphone because I could hear a number of them there, uh, telling me that it had been awarded this prize. And uh, I had not, well, I am not aware, I was not aware that it had been talked about at all. The book had come out and it had gotten good reviews, but if it was getting a lot of buzz, as they now call it, uh, I certainly was completely unaware of it. So that was a complete, total surprise. Uh, and then, when four years later The Giver was published, it very quickly uh, began to be talked about. And I just wished people would shut up. Uh, I... Because then that made me become aware of when the committee was meeting and when they were going to be deciding. And I just did not want to be sitting by my phone that morning thinking maybe it will win the medal. Uh, and, and two things coincided. My husband uh, 
was retiring from his profession. And so we decided to take a trip in celebration of his retirement. And so we went, it was a long trip. We flew to, down to uh, Santiago, Chile, and then from there to the Falkland Islands, and we got on a boat, and we went down to Antarctica. And I don't know that I even gave any thought to the fact that that meeting was being held, that that decision was being made. I simply put it out of my mind because I was literally in another part of the world. And then, of course, when they made the decision, and they always make this famous phone call, uh, they couldn't find me. And so eventually, uh, I mean, my, my editor, people at my publisher knew where I was, but nobody really knew how to get in touch with me. And, and eventually they figured out how to wire, send a wire to this ship. Uh, and a small ship down in the uh, Antarctic, uh, on the coast of Antarctica. And so this pink uh, piece of paper appeared under the door of my cabin during the night and was there when I got up in the morning. And it was from the radio officer, and it said, you know, you've gotten the following message. And I think it said something like, congratulations, the giver has been awarded the Newbery Medal for 1994. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the, the unfortunate thing was that I, I couldn't, tell anybody. I couldn't call my kids. I mean, I, I was completely incommunicado. And so that night at dinner on this boat, I keep calling it a ship, but it's really a very small ship. Uh, I think there were 90 passengers on it. And at dinner that night, I was seated next to a woman whom I didn't know. Uh, but I, I said to her, I had the, this uh, slip of paper with me and I showed it to her. I said, you know, I, you probably well, realize how important this is to me, but I got this wire this morning. And she read it, and her face lit up, and she said, I'm the past president of the American Library. <laughs> oh, my God, what are the odds of that? <laughs> so, so she had somebody take our picture, uh, hers and mine, together on the deck of that ship, and I think it appeared in the, whatever publication the uh, ALI puts out that year. So that was a whole interesting other sort of thing. But but it's become, I think, the awarding of the medal, as I've watched it over the years, it, it's become much more talked about. Uh, I, I don't, back when the giver was selected, it, it wasn't only that I wasn't aware of it. I, I don't think people talked about it the way they did. Of course, there was no Facebook then. There was no internet then. There was no email then. So it wasn't as easy to have those kinds of conversations. Um, but now I see it all the time, uh, you know, as the time leads up to to the meeting of the American Library Association. That's all anybody within, within the extended children's literature community. That's all they talk about. I'm glad it wasn't that way uh, back when my books were awarded that medal. Do you still have that slip of paper that they gave you on the boat? No, I don't. Wouldn't you think I would keep something that's been very important? <laughs> in Again, I've, I've moved since then several times and things disappear. In fact, here's, here's a terrible story. Uh, my husband died seven years ago, and two years after that, I sold the house in which we lived, and I moved to Maine to be near children and grandchildren. 
and I was moving from a very large house to a small house. And so a lot of sorting out. And at one point I had people come and pick up boxes of trash, uh, you know, things that I, I just, nobody wanted and I didn't want anymore and they just needed to be thrown away. And, and so these people came and hauled away these boxes that were in my basement. And this, I guess, was my fault in, in arranging things badly in that basement because among the things they hauled away was a box that was not intended to be thrown away. And it included the two Newbery medals in it. <gasps> and oh, my God. They disappeared. And uh, so that was a sad story, which I had told to a few people. And now I've forgotten when this was. It, it may have been when I moved. At any rate, the people at Houghton Mifflin got together with the people at the American Library Association, and they made me two new Newbery medals, which I do have. Oh, my <laughs> oh, no. God. So happy ending. <laughs> Somebody had a really good day at a garage sale. <laughs> but your, are you, is your name engraved on them? Yes, yeah, they had them completely, uh, I mean, I suppose the original metal is always the same, and then they do the engraving, mm-hmm. and so they, yes, they engraved it with my name and the book's name and, and the date, uh, whatever year that was. Yeah. So I have them here in my small house in a beautiful wooden case. Oh, we were wondering if you have any particular memories that stood out about the actual ceremonies. I know we've read your speeches, which are just beautiful. Yes. Nice memory from the first one is that two things. It was me and, and Ed Young. And Ed Young got to introduce his mother, who had come all the way from China. And at that time, 1990, it was hard for a Chinese person to just leave China to go to something in the U.S. And so a lot of strings had been pulled, and his mother had gotten there, and he introduced her, and this elderly Chinese lady, she stood up, and everybody cheered and clapped. And I was able to introduce my friend from Denmark, who had been the inspiration for uh, the story Number of the Stars, who had come from Denmark to that ceremony. And so she stood up and beamed and lights shined on her and everybody clapped. She has since died. So that's a nice memory that those two very important but tangential people were able to be there for that. Uh, So that was in Chicago. And then the giver ceremony was in uh, Miami. And that was the year that Alan Say won the Collicott Medal for Grandfather's Journey. Beautiful book. And that was when I was introduced to Alan Say, and uh, we had breakfast together. And I gave him a copy of my book, and he gave me a copy of his, and he drew a little picture and signed it for me. And I signed mine for him, and I wrote my name in Japanese. And that's when he said, how do you happen to be able to write Japanese? And I said, I used to live in Japan. And that's when we went through this, where did you live, so did I, what neighborhood, so did I. And that's when we became friends, 1994. Um, and uh, so he lives on the West Coast, so I don't see him very often, uh, but uh, he's a lovely man. So 
so that's my my most important memory, I guess, from from that second ceremony was was Alan. My favorite book of Alan's, the one I think should have won the Newbery, or maybe in addition to Grandfather's Journey, is one called Tree of Cranes, mm. in which he describes a true story himself as a little boy, and with his mother, and his mother had lived in the United States, but he was born in Japan, grew up there, and uh, she tells him about Christmas in the United States, and then she makes him a little Christmas tree and decorates it with folded paper cranes. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful book. All of his work is very beautiful. Number of the Stars. I hadn't read it in a little while, but I read it several times when I was a child, and I reread it this week. And I was really curious about the use of the Little Red Riding Hood folktale in the book. Yeah, it I believe comes from from Grimm. It's a very old tale, mm-hmm. and in fact, I didn't recall this at the time, but I had used that same story uh, as part of my second book for kids, which was called "Find a Stranger, Say Goodbye." It retells Little Red Riding Hood in entirely different contexts, uh, and and then. I don't know, it just came to my mind, I suppose, when I was writing Number of the Stars. It, it's a, a story that would be familiar to children uh, throughout Europe, and, and as well as the United States. And it's retold in, in many different forms. Interestingly, I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, until I moved to Maine five years ago. And I was asked wants to go and speak to a class at Harvard, which I've forgotten the title of the class, but it had to do with fairy tales. I mean, you don't think of fairy tales being taught at Harvard, but this was within the uh, German studies department, and it was a very serious study of classic fairy tales. And so they had me come and, and, I mean, the professor talked about Red Riding Hood, which has a long, long history. I simply talked about my use of it in in a couple of books. Number the Stars, it was based on one of your friend's experiences as a child? Yeah, my friend Annalisa was born in Denmark and grew up there. I met her in the United States, but we were close friends. And... uh, she had told me about her childhood. She was slightly older than I, so she was a child during World War II, uh, but uh, maybe two years older than I, though I certainly have clear memories of being a child during that time. And, and of course, her memories were so different from mine. I, Children in the United States were certainly aware of the war, and if, as I had, you had a, uh, a father who was over there, in the Pacific, as mine was, you were aware of, of all of that was going on without knowing the details. But Annalisa uh, described living in a country that, that was occupied by the Nazis. And I, although I uh, probably had, had been told about what happened in Denmark as part of a history course at some point during my education, I had not remembered it. 
And so when she told me about the rescue of the Danish Jews, it occurred to me almost immediately that that would be a wonderful story to tell to kids. And uh, and so I, I created the little girl. She's a fictional character. But <clears throat> by the time I was writing it, Annalisa had returned to Denmark. She had come to the States because she married an American. But then later they were divorced, and so she returned to Denmark. And I had visited her there, and she had visited me here. But in this particular time, when we started talking about the war, she and I had taken a vacation together. We were in Bermuda together for a week. And uh, so I, I asked her for lots of details. And then uh, I, I did a lot of research in a library in, in Boston, near where I lived, but then I had to go to Denmark, and she put me in touch with people who had been adults at that time, uh, who who could tell me things from an adult point of view. I remember having dinner with a, a woman, elderly by then, but I was able to ask her, for example, a question that Annalisa would not have been able to answer. She was able to tell me what they ate, what their school was like, uh, details of what she wore. Uh, but I asked this woman, what what would a Danish housewife have been reading in 1943? And she told me right away, oh, we were all reading Gone with the Wind. <laughs> uh, and and uh, and so that appears uh, in in uh, in the book. Uh, Annalisa corrected one mistake that I made in the first draft, which is when they uh, the children go up the coast to the uncle's farm, and food was scarce at that time because the the Nazis the Germans were confiscating a lot of the crops, and, and uh, so the Danish people didn't have enough to eat really and um, so when they get up the coast to the uncle's farm there are apples still on a tree as there might have been in October and in the first draft the mother made an apple pie and uh, Annalisa said to me she laughed when she read that she said don't you remember the phrase American as apple pie she said the Danes, the Danes don't make apple pie so I said, what would they, what would mother have made with those apples? And she told me applesauce. So that's what the mother does in the book. Uh, I remember Annalisa telling me also, uh, I asked her what a family pet dog would be named. And so she gave the name of, of the mother's childhood pet in the book. I'm just thinking, though, of something, two things that I was not able to put in the book. Annalisa told me that it was so cold in the winter, and they had no heat. And so people were um, taking their furniture apart, wooden chairs, and, and, and burning them in the stove just, just to heat their apartments. But she said that uh, she and her sister and brother wore mittens to bed. And I thought that was a kind of touching detail that would be effective, but I couldn't use it because the events in the book happened, all of them, in one week in late October, and it would not yet have been that cold. But here's another wonderful detail that I I, I wasn't able to use in the book, and I didn't know about it until long after the book was published, and it's this. Uh, when I went to Chicago, 
in fact, I should have told you this in in relation to the Newberry uh, event. Uh, I met there uh, a lawyer in Chicago. He's still there. And he brought his wife to meet me because his wife had was Danish and she had been and Jewish. She had been 10 years old when she was hidden in a fishing boat and taken to Sweden. And um, so she wanted to meet me and and did so. She has sadly since died. But at any rate, uh, she told this story. And, and this is something I couldn't have used in the book anyway because I didn't continue it uh, beyond... I didn't continue it into Sweden, but her story was this. When her family, she and her family, arrived in Sweden, they were cold and wet and seasick and miserable and scared. And they were taken in by a Swedish family and uh, given clean, warm clothes to put on. And uh, and their clothes, their wet, dirty clothes, were taken to be laundered, someplace to be laundered. And she said a day or so later, their clean clothes were returned to them, and in all the pockets, they were there were candy, pieces hmm. of candy. Oh, I know. Doesn't that make you get so, so sweet? Down? But it was, it was a just sweet example of of the way people were treated at at that time. Yeah. Hmm. And I was so struck reading, rereading Number of the Stars about how, you know, when I was a child, when I read this, of course, I read it, you know, years after the war had ended in America. I was like 10 years old. So I didn't have any frame of reference for what had happened in World War II, really. But the mm-hmm. way that you broke down, you know, the Rosen's, you know, having to leave their life, leave their lives and their, you know, their small dignities about how, you know, being brave, how to be brave and what that means. That's something that even, even now as an adult, like I read it and it's just so beautiful the way that you lay it out and um, explain the situation. But I think there are a number of books that do that, books for children that, that gives them a sense of something huge by telling them something very small. And and one that comes to my mind that I think is a beautiful book by Patricia Polanco is called Pink and Say. Do you know that book? Uh, I mean, that's the story of, of uh, a white soldier and a, and a black... I've, I've forgotten the details. And she describes it as having been part of her own heritage told to her by her... Uh, predecessors, uh, the relationship between this white boy and black boy uh, during the Civil War, uh, one saving the other. And I think that's what, what kids uh, can respond to and learn from, is by by perceiving a, a, a personal story, by, by understanding how individuals are affected by these very broad concepts, as opposed to reading a history book, as we all have to do, of course, and take the test and get the A. But what really affects you and stays with you is the story of a human being. It's what Anne Frank's diary has done for generations. Yeah, putting a face on it. You know, and it's also, you never have talked down. Whenever I would read your books as a child, I always felt like you were telling me the truth. 
and that was such a huge thing. Well, one one advantage I had was that uh, I didn't have to write about the atrocities because they didn't happen in Denmark. Uh, it introduces the Holocaust, which will which kids will have to learn about. And incidentally, they use number of the stars in the German schools. Uh, they they feel very strongly about. Uh, the fact that they must teach what happened in Germany, but it's very difficult for them. My my only granddaughter has grown up in Germany and gone through that educational system, and they they do use numbers of stars there. But but uh, I didn't have to write about uh, concentration camps and and uh, the Warsaw Ghetto or any of that because it didn't happen in Denmark. We had also heard that Sean Astin is is pushing hard for a movie version of Number of the Stars. Oh, he's he's been trying to do it for a very long time, and uh, you know, money is always the stalling point. And uh, so he, you know, he still wants to do it. He has the script, he has everything put together, except he hasn't been able to raise the money. Uh, and. There was a time when a famous, I will not name, movie producer offered him the money but wanted to take control of the project, and Sean rightly said no. Mm -hmm. uh, it really is a passion of his, this book, and, uh, and he wants to do it his way. So it may never get done, uh, but I admire his, his, uh, his energy and his passion and, and his sticking to it for now a number of years. But then Jeff, Jeff Bridges tried for 20 years to make a movie of The Giver before he, he got it done. So these things do take a long time, and, and sometimes they fall apart in the meantime. Incidentally, though, I just will end by saying that uh, a book of mine called The Willoughby is, uh, oh, is yeah. about to be a movie. It's going to be an animated film, and uh, they have some wonderful voices doing the voices, a lot of Saturday Night Live people. And I understand Ricky Ricky Gervais, oh. uh, but I don't I I haven't seen any any pieces of it, uh, so I don't know anything about it except that it's in the work. Well, to end, one of the things we do in our podcast is we tend to make a cocktail and and sort of sip on it while we're talking about the books. So we have been asking authors if you happen to have a favorite drink. A favorite drink. I'm I am not a cocktail drinker. I am a wine drinker. Oh. Uh, What's your favorite wine? Uh, my favorite wine is a, a French wine called Sancerre. So let's have a glass of that. Oh, oh yeah. I love Sancerre. That's an excellent choice. Thank you so much for talking to us this evening. You are quite welcome. It's been a pleasure. And it kept me, gave me something to do in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> I hope your lights come back on soon. I hope they do, too. No sign of it yet. Anyway, thank you both. It's been fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Newberry Tart today as we talked to Lois Lowry, amazing author of two different Newberry medal-winning books, author of more than 40 different children's books, and super entertaining person. <laughs> <laughs> See you next time. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. 
Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.